Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, if you'll turn to the 13th chapter and start in verse 34, and that's where our, our passage we're going to read from is today. The Gospel of John in the New Testament, chapter 13, verse 34. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And, and once you get to John, you go to thir chapter 13, and then you look at verse 34. And um, uh, that's actually at the, uh, well, that's actually at the, the Last Supper, if you will. That's the part of John that that uh, is. Julie? See, making adjustments as we speak. All right. Um, we have to put that down a little bit. It sounds a little loud. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so we're going to be in the, in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, in verse uh, 34. And, and um, those of you who are reading it right now, as you're looking at the words, you see that he says, a new commandment I give to you. And that's how he starts it off. So that's why I, I, I felt uh, led to title the sermon, A New Commandment. And I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to be really candid with you guys, I struggled this week more than I think I've ever struggled in preparing a message before. And I know I've said that a couple different times, but truly, up until yesterday evening, even this morning, I, I, I thought I was going to have to pull a Charles Spurgeon and tell you that the Lord did not give me a revelation to speak to you today, so we're going to come back next week and try again. Um, came real close to, to doing that, but I don't, I don't feel that that would have been honoring to, to the Lord because he did put a theme on my heart of love. And as you guys know, I'm not a really good topical preacher. I, I, I'm more of an exegetical, expository, verse-by-verse -verse kind of uh, preacher. And um, so when every time I get a topic, I get scared. And the reason I get afraid to preach on a topic is because it's very easy to misinterpret Scripture when you're trying to put a, a passage into a specific topic that you want. It's very easy to let the human mind that is finite interpret what the Scriptures practically mean instead of looking at the Word of God to tell you what it means. So I don't like topical preaching, and that's probably why I squirmed and struggled so much in preparing this, because I really feel that our world has a problem with love. Our world has a problem with love. In fact, uh, and we're going to get into this after we read the passage just a little bit, but I, I wanted to share with you why I think the world has a problem with love. And I think the world has a problem with love because it's the most abused word in the English language. Love is the most abused word in the English language. We say to our wives, our children, husbands, aunts, uncles, people, friends, I love you. But do we really mean what we say? Do we really mean what we say? And it feels awkward looking at my wife over here as the only person sitting on that side of the church. So if I don't look at you that much, please don't be upset. Um, uh, but what, what do we really mean when we say I love you? What does that mean? So today as we preach through this passage of Scripture, I want us to contemplate what do we mean when we say, I love you. Let's read what the Word of the Lord says as Jesus is speaking. Uh, and, and it's written in red in my Bible. And, and coincidentally, the, the educator for this class I'm in at CPE, he says that both he and Jesus used a red letter edition when I turn in my assignments. He'll make his notes in red for me to adhere, <laughs> adhere to what he wants me to change. So... Um, Jesus' words are written in red to highlight what he's saying so we can take hold of what, what his words are. And he says, starting in verse 34 of John chapter 13, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, 
if you have love for one another. Let's, let's pray together. Father God, today as we try to dissect this passage of Scripture, where we're not going to be so much dissecting it, but explaining practically what it means. And there's a lot of background that we have to get through this today to understand the concept of love. So I pray that today that you give me the words to say, because we will truly know that it is you speaking to your people and not me. Holy Spirit, I pray a special anointing on me today, on my tongue, to speak the words of truth and wisdom to the audience and to myself. I pray that not only will we understand the gospel message better today when we leave here, and people who might not be saved may come to know Jesus Christ, but I pray that those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ can have a moment of inward reflection where we can examine our hearts and determine if we really do have love in our hearts. I pray this today as we, as we speak this message, that you will be honored and glorified and your word will not return void. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So let's, let's, let's look at this. Well, we have to, while we're looking at this and examining this passage of Scripture, the word love is used four times. If you look, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The same word in Greek, agape, was used four times in that passage of Scripture. Which, we have to go back to the Greek to understand what love really is. Because in English, you say, I love you, and it has so many different meanings. That's why I say it's the most abused word in the English language. Because most of the time when we say it, we have no clue what we, what we mean. Or, worse yet, not only do we not know what we mean, but the people we're talking to have no clue what we mean either. So I want us to understand a little bit and think of love in a different, different idea. Maybe a strange idea that we've never thought of love before, but I want us to think of love in four categories. And lo and behold, the, the original Greek language has four words to define love. Now, the New Testament only uses two of those words. It uses agape and philos. Agape and philos. But there are two other words used for love in the Greek that I think will help us understand what love really means. The first word is agape, which is self-sacrificing, 100% sold out, 100% wholehearted, unadulterated, I'm sold out for you, going to give myself for you, love. That's agape, love. Then another love that's, that's if you had to rank them, would be, like right below that is philos, or brotherly type love. A familial, uh, affectionate love, but it's not so much self-sacrificing as one would believe. And then the next love, not necessarily in rank, but the next one I have listed on my list is eros love. And it's a romantic, erotic type love that is, is typically consummated in, a, in an intimate relationship between a man and a wife. Then you have storge love, storge love. And it's, it's, it's a protection love, a looking after type love, like a love a, a, a man has for his wife and his children, or a woman has for her children, the mama bear mentality, you know. They, they'll, they'll fight a grizzly bear for their children, a storge love. So what do all four of these words for love really, really mean? Well, when I say I love someone, what am, what am I trying to convey to them, and what do I hope that they hear? Because, see, when I, when I tell Lisa that I love her, I might be saying, I agape you, I philos you, I edos you, or I storge you. And what, I, what, what I'm trying to convey to her and what she hears might be two totally different things. 
I may say, I agape you, and she might, she might hear, I storge you. So the only way to really understand what love means when we speak it is to have our actions follow what our words say. That's a novel concept, isn't it? That our actions should follow our words. Man, it's going to get deep real quick in here. I hope everybody brought their boots. I'm going to be real with you today. I'm going to be vulnerable with you because I feel that preaching a word from the word of the Lord, if I can't be real with you, then you can't be real with me. And if I can't be real with you, I can't be real with God, and you can't be real with God. So we're going we're gonna to cut all the formalities out, and we're just going to be straight up honest with each other today. Okay? And I'm going to share with you some moments where I failed to love, and I, wanna, I want to help you understand that because I failed to love, God could feel love in me and help me love that much better. Because it's only when we surrender ourselves to the gospel message of Jesus Christ, when we lay ourselves down in front of Jesus and we admit our vulnerabilities, that we can be lifted up and encouraged. Amen? The only way that we can truly understand love is understand that we can't love by ourselves. We cannot protect those that we love without Jesus. We cannot have an intimate relationship with our spouse without Jesus. If you don't understand that, go back and read Song of Solomon. We cannot have a brotherly, familial relationship love if we don't have Jesus because we don't understand how to do it ourselves. And most importantly, we can't have an agape-type love for anyone unless we look to Jesus because He's the only one who gave it all. Jesus paid it all, and all to Him I owe. That hymn takes on a whole new meaning when you understand what agape love really is. And while I was driving to church this morning, I thought of one specific example where I failed to love the way I was supposed to love. And I'm going to share this, and I know this is live and all this other kind of stuff, and I don't really care what people think of me. But there was a time, a long time ago, I say a long time ago, at least I've been married 16 years, right? I remembered. September 2nd was 16 years. And there was a time that I did not love my wife like I should. There was a time where I looked at her and, I, and we, we communicated and we actually talked about several years ago about what it would look like if we weren't together. It's not an easy thing to admit, but I'm real, I'm vulnerable. I can tell this story. There was a lot of years I did not love Lisa like I should have, and I failed as a husband. And you know why I failed as a husband? Because I didn't look to Jesus to help me love her. I can't love my wife without Jesus. Only He can allow me to love her wholeheartedly. And likewise, if I'm not loving her like I should, only Jesus can fill that gap and that void. And if she's not loving me like she should, only Jesus can fill that void. The problem in America is we look to other people to fill the void that only Jesus can fill. When we, when we put the love of a human being, and we, we take that love that I have for my wife, only Jesus can complete it. 
And even, even if we're not talking, uh, even if we're talking about philos love, a familial brotherly type love, we cannot love each other if we don't have Jesus because we are flawed human beings. And if anybody listening in this audience today thinks that they can love someone out of their own strength, they're foolish. That is a lie from Satan, and it ain't going to happen. You want to know why these marriages fall apart? Because there's not a love there. Oh, I don't doubt that there's not some kind of sexual attraction or lust. I don't even doubt that there's not an attempt to love one another. But when the going gets tough, the fact of the matter is, is they turn farther away from Jesus and they lose that love connection. And when they lose that love connection, what happens? The marriage falls apart because they rely on their own strength to build it back up together. We have such a negative connotation in this culture that we live in, in, in the Western Hemisphere, where we, we, especially in America, where you don't cry, you don't show emotion, you don't do any of that stuff. And I hate to tell you, but you cannot love somebody if you don't have any emotional attachment. It is physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually impossible to love someone if you have no emotions whatsoever. It's not possible. Many people may think I'm crazy, but I know a lot of men, they won't cry in front of people, but they'll cry in private. Now, I'm not saying that you can't love somebody if you don't show emotion, if you don't cry. That's not what I'm getting at. I don't want anybody in the audience thinking that I'm trying to say that, you, that some people just need to break down. Maybe, that, maybe that's what they need. But what I am trying to say is that if you don't have emotions, you can't love. There, there's a connection there. God gave us emotions, right? And that action of crying and laughing together, those are acts of, of love. How are you supposed to bear each other's burdens if you don't have emotions? Paul says in Galatians 6 to bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law, the law of Christ. Our actions speak louder than words, and they depict the context behind the word we're using. So when I look at Lisa and I say I love you, my actions reflect the context of the love that I have for her at that moment. And in reality, a marriage, this is unique now because uh, Jesus is the head of the church. The church is the bride of Christ. So when Jesus loves the church, he has agape love, philos love, eros love, and storge love for the church, does he not? He has an all-sacrificing love, a familial brotherly love, a, an intimate love, and a protection love of the church. Why do you think the, the marriage relationship on earth is so sacred? Because it is the closest thing that we can understand as human beings to the relationship the church has with Jesus Christ. So he says to, the, to, the, to his disciples, because he knows he's getting ready to die. Now I want us to understand this picture. We can close our eyes if you want to. I'm not, because I've got to see what's going on here. But you can close your eyes. I want you to think for a few minutes. Everybody close your eyes. and I want, Don't fall asleep. Close your eyes and think for a few moments and picture this. Jesus is sitting at the table, reclining at the table of the Last Supper, and around him are 12 people. And he's been trying to tell them for three and a half years what's going to happen to him. And he's sitting there, and he's giving them these words. Now you tell me, if you really love somebody, you would tell them everything that's going on, and then you say, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. How painful those words must have been for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
You can open your eyes. Now think about that. What did you see? I hope you saw our Lord in anguish. Emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and physically. That is a trying time to try to give somebody the honest truth and you know what's going to happen to them. They're going to be persecuted. They're going to be murdered. They're going to be thrashed apart because of their faith that they have in Him, their leader. But they're going to do great things for the world, for Jesus Christ. They're going to go and spread the gospel to the farthest ends of the earth. That's love. You want to know what love is? Love is doing something without expecting anything in return. That's, that's love. That's agape love. That's true agape love. So he says, I give to you this new commandment. So when he says the word, a new commandment, I give to you. There's, there's some context we have to understand here. <clears throat> if you give a new commandment, that implies that there's other commandments. Right? If I say I give you a new commandment, that implies that there's other commandments out there. Okay, so that's, that's step number one. The second thing is that it implies inherently that the giver of that new commandment has the authority to give a commandment. Right? If he says a new commandment I give to you, that means he has the authority to do it. So now we're, we're, we're establishing that Jesus Christ is the lawgiver. Right? We're establishing that Jesus Christ is God, John 1.1. 1, 1, right? We're establishing his deity, his authority. And it also, it also implies a submissive relationship on behalf of the receiver. It implies a submissive relationship on, the, on behalf of the receiver. The, the fact, very fact is that we accept this new commandment means that we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Amen? And if we accept Him as Lord and Savior, then we are to follow His commandments, right? And what did He say the, first, the two greatest commandments was in Matthew 22? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might, and all your strength. Love, agape love. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And both of those words in my Bible are written in all caps, which means they're quoted from the Old Testament. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, and you get the Shema. That's the first one. And the second commandment is in Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who's your neighbor? Go to Luke 10 and read the story of the Good Samaritan. Why did he use the story of the Good Samaritan? Because it was, it was, it was important that the Jews had to know that the Samaritans were their brothers, even though they hated each other, because the Samaritans were considered half-breeds. That was their neighbor. So who's our neighbor? Everyone. And if we don't have love for our neighbor, how can we have love for ourselves? And how can we have love for Christ? Exodus chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments. And we can't understand Exodus chapter 20 if we don't understand that Israel has a submissive relationship to God. You know why they have a submissive relationship with God? Because God showed storge love to them, a protection love, and he took them out of the land of Egypt and out of the land of oppression and brought them into the promised land. And before they got there, he said, i got to teach you how I want you to worship me. i got to teach you how I want you to have a relationship with me. And i got to teach you how to have a relationship with each other. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, if you follow all ten of those, you ain't going to have no problem. You won't kill, you won't steal, you won't destroy, you won't have, commit adultery. You'll honor your parents and you'll love God. Seems easy enough, doesn't it? But there's a problem in this world. His name is Satan and his demons, and in John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I come to give life and give it abundantly. So Israel has a, a, a submissive relationship by default with God, because once they accepted his sovereignty as, cre as creator and redeemer, 
They need to follow his commandments because of their rescue from bondage. What did Jesus come to do for us? Jesus came to rescue us from bondage, did he not? Did he not? He came to rescue us from bondage, so therefore we need to submit to Christ. What does submission mean? Well, you know, submission is an act of love. Submission is an act of love. How do I know that? Only when you truly submit to somebody do you give, do you make yourself vulnerable to them. That's what love is, making yourself vulnerable to somebody else. If you give someone 100, 100% of you, that's very difficult to do. Because if you do it, you stand a risk of rejection, you stand a risk of hurt, you stand a risk of alienation, you stand a risk of a lot of things. And if you take that risk, the reward is great. But if you're not willing to take that risk, the reward is not great. It all boils down to the risk and the reward. The greater the risk, the greater the reward. And I challenge everyone within the sound of my voice to examine their hearts and see if when they are in a loving relationship, if they're giving themselves 100% to the other person. Jesus gave 100% to us, so we should give 100% back to him. That's love. If we claim Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, then we love him, then we should give ourselves 100% to him. Anything less than 100% ain't enough. If we say that we love our spouse, we give ourselves 100% to them, because anything less than that is not enough. All right, I just wanted to make sure we're on the same page. He says, love one another. As, well, well, before we get to that, I'm skipping something here. And I, I have something I have to, I, I want to get this across. If you don't submit to Jesus Christ, I'm sorry to say, but I have a hard time believing that you're a Christian. I have a hard time believing it. I have a hard time buying it. That's not my place to judge. I know I'm not condemning anybody to hell because Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I promise you one thing, that if you don't submit to Jesus Christ, I, I don't think myself or anybody else can understand how someone will be a Christian if they don't submit to Jesus. And why do I know that? Because the very etymology or the science behind the word Christian implies three things. The word Christian implies that you're made into the image of Christ, you're continuing to be like Christ, the being molded, you're being um, transformed, the word metamorphosis in Romans 12. And then the third reason why I'd say that if you're not submitting to Christ, it's hard to know that you're a Christian, is because the very word of submission leads to discipleship, and the Greek word methetes means disciple, follower, and apprentice. So if you say I'm a Christian, you're effectively saying that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you're saying you're a follower of Christ, but you're not submitting to him, how in the world can you be a follower? How in the world can we be a Christian if we're not following Jesus? We watched the movie War Room last night. Stayed up until 11 o'clock. Great. I like Miss Clara. She's on point. I like, I like at the end when she gets the phone call from the woman. If you haven't seen War Room, I'm going to spoil part of the movie for you. When, when she gets the phone call from the woman, and she's like, Ah, devil, you got your butt kicked. That's what she said. 
Because she taught a woman how to submit to Jesus. She discipled a woman to submit to Jesus. I didn't ruin the whole movie, so you can go watch it, Brittany. Saw her face back there. She's like, oh, he's going to ruin it for me. If you don't submit, you can't claim the reward. He says, love one another as I have loved you. How does Jesus love us? Unconditionally. That's right. That's right. Man, I'm glad we had, we had some voices come up. That's awesome. He became sin that knew no sin. He took our place and faced the wrath of God. He came to save the whole world. And he sets an example for us to follow. How awesome is that? He loves us unconditionally. But a lot of times we serve him conditionally. Self-sacrificing love. Give up yourself for the benefit of others. Here, here's, the, here's a passage of scripture. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's pretty, pretty powerful. <clears throat> Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. Self-sacrificing love. You know, you can, you, can command re, you can demand respect, but you can't make somebody love each other. You know that? You can demand and command people to have mutual respect, but you can't demand and command them to love one another. You know that? Because love is an action that can only be done willingly. It can't be, can't be com compulsory. You can't be, it can't be done under compulsion. You can't make somebody love you. You can't make somebody love somebody else. You can make them respect people, but you can't make them love anybody. That's interesting, don't you think? We have a free will to choose whom we're going to love. Man. So we have a free will to choose if we're going to love Jesus and if we're going to love each other. And if we love Jesus, we have to love one another. That's what he said, right? Don't you just like how this all ties together? I think it's great. So who do we love? We love one another. And if we follow that, that segue that I pointed out a few minutes ago to Luke chapter 10, the Good Samaritan, if everybody's our neighbor, then who are we supposed to love? Everybody. Everybody. You know why we have to love everybody? Because love changes people. True, selfless love changes people. It challenges people, too. It changes our position and our status with God when we choose to love. When we choose to love God, it changes our position and status. You know that? We go from being a sinner and a reprobate to being a follower of Jesus Christ when we choose to love. You know what else it does? It changes our position and our status with others. You know why? Because people think we're crazy when we love someone when they treat us like garbage. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? 
Do not, do not even the tax collectors do the same? This is in Matthew chapter 5. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Now, he's speaking to a Jewish audience, but the practical application is that if we only love those who love us, what are we doing? Absolutely nothing. James speaks to that, the half-brother of Christ, when he says, he tells us that we shouldn't show partiality in the church, as is the habit of some, but we're to love all equally and treat all everybody equally, because that's love. These are not new struggles that we have today. They, are, they have been around for several thousands of years. They struggled with them in the first century. They struggled with them in the second century and every other time after that. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture in 1 John chapter 3. You can turn there if you'd like, but you don't have to. And, it's, it's, it, and then this, is, this is John, the same John who, wrote, who recorded the words of Jesus in John 13, or the same John who writes this. This is what he says. See how great a love... The Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has, <clears throat> and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. He continues... Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him sins, and no one sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as He is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother, and for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Man, we probably could have just read the second half of that part. I have a question. Are we disciples of Jesus Christ? Now, when we answer that question, I don't want anybody to justify anything in their mind, because if you're like me, you start thinking, well, I could say yes because of that. No, we ain't doing that. It's a straight-up question, yes or no. Are we a disciple of Jesus Christ? If yes, fine. If no, fine. But be prepared to handle the consequences of either answer. If you say yes, there are consequences, because there's an expectation of what a disciple of Jesus acts like. Right? An apprentice of Jesus should act a certain way. Conversely, 
If someone says, no, I'm not a disciple of Jesus Christ, they're going to act a certain way. Our actions reflect our answers. We, we, can, we can say yes or no all we want, but our actions will reflect what our true state is. Are we a disciple of Jesus Christ? We have a, a song of reflection, meditation, invitation. Jesus paid it all. <laughs> How appropriate. All to him I owe. Sin had left his crimson stain, and he washed me white as snow. So, a new commandment he gives to us to love one another as he has loved us. So we should also love one another. Selflessly, wholeheartedly, self-sacrificing to be a disciple of Jesus. That's the way we have to love. Let's pray together.